As I mentioned uh, earlier in this series of talks, some of what I want to speak about um, is really uh, for the sake of bringing things to our collective attention, your individual attention, our collective attention, for consideration, for reflection, certain aspects, certain elements, certain strands, and certain dimensions of things. And that reflection and consideration, obviously with the mind, but also with the heart and with the soul even more so. So what does that mean to hear something, to ponder it, to mull it over, to digest and let it sink in, uh, not just to the mind, not just to the heart, but also to the soul. And so one of those uh, strands or elements or aspects that I would like to bring into the light, shine some light on, is the whole question of tradition, or the whole concept of tradition. And I really mean mostly uh, what we might call religious or spiritual traditions, even if you don't like either of those words, religious or spiritual, you know what I mean. So perhaps that might strike some of you as a, a slightly strange subject for a Dharma talk to talk about the tradition or tradition or what a tradition is and what's involved in tradition. I'm not sure. Of course, some of you might think, well, Rob, at this point, they're all pretty strange, the Dharma talk, so either way. Um, but I'd like to reflect a little bit on tradition, sort of lay things out, open, unpack things, open them up, and kind of look at what we've got there. And within that, particularly, I'm talking, obviously, about the tradition of Buddha Dharma, the Buddhist tradition. And within that, or as part of we want to look at and consider it as well is the the place or how we might conceive of the place of say soul making dharma with respect to buddha dharma what's that relationship there and how do how do we conceive of soul making dharma how do we place it with regard to, to to the tradition of buddha dharma and what would it mean to to talk about or to consider a soul making dharma tradition too early to say anything like that but if there were such a thing to evolve in the future or a feeling of such a thing a perception of such a thing among certain people um, what might we again, unpack, lay out, that would also have relevance to, to that kind of situation, that kind of sense of tradition, or a tradition like that. Some people would um, say, <clears throat> well, we're at a point in history, humanity is at a point in history where it's important to reflect on traditions for all kinds of reasons. So, yes, that, that may well be true, sort of after modernism or in the throes of modernism or the dying throes of modernism or postmodernism or whatever, it might be true that we're at that juncture, at that point in history. But one could ask, is the whole notion of a point in history really a reality? That's something I'll come back to.
is there really a point in history that we can agree on? We are at this point of history. This is what characterizes this point in history, this juncture. These are the salient features. This is what's important. This is what constitutes that juncture or that point. So some would say it's important to talk about tradition and our sense of that and our expectations of that and our views of traditions, our relationships with traditions because of where humanity is at the current time, historically. But I would say perhaps more important that if you love practice and if you are devoted to practice and if you love uh, the teachings, then, as you've heard me point out before, where there is that kind of love and devotion, there is fantasy in the soul-making sense of the word. There is a kind of narrative image that potentially has all the qualities of the imaginal, all the elements of the imaginal filled out with beauty and dimensionality and eros, etc. So if you love uh, practice and the teachings, if you're devoted to practice and the teachings, there will be wrapped up in that love and partly supporting that love, a fantasy of practice and yourself in practice and the teachings and that will involve a fantasy of the tradition an idea of the tradition a sense of the tradition a relationship with the tradition an image of the tradition that fantasy also feeds your love so there's again a mutual support a mutual reinforcement a mutual nourishment uh, a mutual dependency if you like of the love and the devotion on the one hand and the fantasy on the other they're not really even separable. So that if you love practice and the teachings, and if you're devoted to the teachings, there will be the fantasy, and there will be a sense of a tradition as part of that larger fantasy, and you will care about these kinds of things that we're talking about tonight. You'll care about this question of tradition and what it involves and what to expect from it, etc. It won't be abstract, it will matter to you. It will be of more than you know, somewhat uh, academic interest. Not too long ago, I was speaking with a colleague, Stephen Batchelor, and um, was asking him how it was going with Bodhi College, etc. And he was telling me a few things. And one of the things he said was that the course uh, that they had uh, put together a course and advertised it online, etc., uh, about the, I think it was called the Buddhist Roots of Mindfulness. So really looking at the uh, the origins in, in the Buddhist teachings, in the Pali Can, etc., of contemporary mindfulness practices and teachings. And he said that Surprising to them was the fact that virtually no one registered for that course. There was very little interest for those courses. There was very little interest from people who were either mindfulness practitioners or uh, participants in mindfulness courses or mindfulness teachers or um, therapeutic mindfulness uh, workers or, or whatever. And... They were surprised by that. On reflection, I, in a way, I'm not that surprised because 
it, it may be that in the way that uh, mindfulness is promoted in some circles these days, and the way it's practiced and related to by many, is really as a, a technique or perhaps a set of techniques for the alleviation of suffering. So that one lives one's life as one lives it, and one just incorporates these techniques as sort of useful and helpful uh, strategies to reduce stress, anxiety, uh, suffering, and, and dis-ease. And as such, as just a technique that sort of has some utility in relieving stress and anxiety, uh, or pain, for example, it remains just that, a kind of utilitarian technique. And it rarely or for many people, it, it won't be ever become more than that. They may practice mindfulness every day for the rest of their lives with a certain kind of commitment, let's not call it devotion, uh, let's call it commitment, a certain kind of steadiness of commitment is important to them and it's really helpful and that's great. But it's never more than that, it's never more than a technique for reducing suffering so that there isn't the kind of falling in love with practice and the ethos of practice and the, the kind of um, nebula of um, dimensions and aspects and elements that, that kind of constellate around and make up something like a, a Buddhist practice. Um, and so... For a person who's just relating to, say, mindfulness as a technique that's helpful in their lives, you know, that's wonderful, that's great. Um, but there won't be the falling in love. There won't, therefore, be the, the fantasy. And and there won't be the sense of caring much about tradition and therefore caring much about the past and the stories and the history. So in a way, on reflection, I'm not, I wasn't too surprised to hear that uh, from Stephen that there was very little uptake or interest in such a course. Anyway, if you love, and I'm assuming most people that listen to this talk will be people who, who love practice deeply, who have deep devotion to practice and to teachings, there will be that fantasy. There will therefore be implicitly some sense of uh, and care about and kind of fantasy of an eros for, for tradition and, and everything that's implied in that. So like I said at the beginning, I just want to kind of bring some stuff to light, bring some of the aspects of this question of tradition to light, lay it out. I don't want to conclude too much from that. It's almost like just, as I said, laying out some things on the ground together, we can have a look. I don't want to impose any conclusions that I might have on on that kind of laying out of material and considerations. Uh, I, I will more give it to you uh, to perhaps make your conclusions, but also, um, to, as I said, to ponder, to reflect, how does this sit with me? How do all these considerations or these aspects when we lay them out and look at them and say, mm, yes, there's that and there's that mm, and that and didn't think of that. How does it land with you? How does it sit in your heart, in your soul, in your mind? What's the response of your being? 
And what's the responsibility of your being? Again, if you, and the responsibility of your soul, if you care deeply, if you love deeply, again, it goes with duty. If you love deeply, if you're devoted, there's image around, there's eros around. Things are on the verge of or on their way to being fully imaginal and part of that will be duty and part of the duty will be to the teachings, to the tradition, etc. So in laying all this out, again, I don't want to force any conclusions that I might have or any perspectives that I might have too much of obviously some things some of that will be inevitable just in the nature of the situation it's me talking I'm in the role of the teacher here some authority with that some clout with that but really I'm more interested in uh, the process uh, of how it how it sits how it's digested how it's related to and held in your heart Certainly my intention is not to be uh, primarily even kind of deconstructive or destructive of um, loyalties and notions of tradition, um, etc. like that. Some might say, oh, you're saying some dangerous things, etc. I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know about that. I think it's just a matter of maturity and honesty and consciousness and openness of mind. And then what do we do with this? How do we assimilate it, consider it, reflect on it? Where do we move from here? How do we uh, look um, towards the past, towards the present, towards the future, inwards and outwards, at each other, etc.? So it's really for you and about your process. And I, as much as possible, I just want to lay some things out for, for that kind of heart, mind and soul consideration. If we just bring up the word tradition and uh, just kind of immediately what comes to mind when we think about tradition and sort of throw things in a pot and, and when we think about what is a tradition, what do we mean by tradition um, and uh, even more sort of uh, pointedly or re relevantly, what do we mean uh, or what's involved what needs to be involved and included in a healthy tradition, if we might use such a term, or a, 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 an alive, a living tradition? What, what, what elements and constituents might be necessary uh, in, to, to, to form a, a healthy living tradition that retains some coherence and some vitality? So if we just think about it, just, just briefly, and I don't mean at all to be comprehensive, I just want to throw some things in a pot right now, um, but some of what I want to throw into that pot right now may not be immediately obvious when we think of what's involved in the tradition. So some, I don't intend to be comprehensive at this point, and, and actually through none of this talk am I intending to be comprehensive, there's other stuff that I've said before um, around these subjects, so I don't want to repeat too much. Um, but I do want to kind of unearth or bring to light some elements uh, to consider that, as I said, might not be obvious to, to many of us uh, at first. So when we just think, so what do you think of when, when we say tradition? What do you think is included or implied? And if we just think kind of almost off the top of the head, you think, oh, 
tradition kind of implies a community for a start. So we tradition has to be more than one person. Um, and that community has to be spread, if you like. It has to exist in the present, so, so to speak. There's a, a community um, that, that extends in the present between people. And it also has to have a, a tie with the past, a, a flow from the past and hopefully into the future. So it's a community in the present with a past, with a, with a connection to a feed from, from the past. And that community, what's included, again, what's in, we're just kind of throwing into a pot, what's included, uh, what's necessary for a healthy living tradition. Um, that uh, community, that um community that constitutes uh, a tradition needs to have, I might say, uh, certain, certain things need to be shared by that community. So one is values. There needs to be um, a, a good degree of shared values. Some of what we can put in that part of values is, is the goals. What goals, what aims, uh, what ends are considered um, valuable? And so there has to be a kind of common ground there among the members of the, of the community, um, extending both from the past to the present, into the future, and also in the present uh, among, among constituent members of that community of that Sangha. There needs to also be shared practices, shared, we might say, rituals or customs, um, or let's put it this way, why don't we open it up as a question already, rather than me insisting there needs to be, I actually don't want to insist, I'd rather put it as a question, I should have said that earlier. Um, do, does there need to be, or to what extent does there need to be, uh, in this community, shared values, shared goals, shared practices, shared rituals, shared customs? Uh, to what extent does there need to be shared stories? anecdotes uh, from the past of uh, characters, beings, teachers, disciples, etc., practitioners from the tradition. Um, to what extent does there need to be a shared history of that tradition? This is the history of our tradition. To what extent does there need to be a shared vocabulary that certain words become meaningful, important, charged, uh, rich, uh, also function um, powerfully as shorthands that people perhaps know what, what you're talking about when you say Four Noble Truths or, or whatever it is, or uh, mindfulness or whatever. So shared vocabulary, shared beliefs. Again, to what I'm really asking, uh, what extent does a, a healthy, vital, and living community need share need to share beliefs? Need, need need shared beliefs, shared conceptual frameworks, logoi, and shared ontological commitments, which in a way are partly beliefs. In other words, what I talked about in the in one of the talks earlier. And somehow, we if we're going to feel, do we, if we're going to feel part of the same community, me and this person, whoever it is, me and this group, do we actually have to share ontological commitments, uh, a sense of what we believe and feel 
uh, and invest in as true, including the, the implicit um, epistemological considerations there of what we believe are the ways to come come uh, come by knowledge of the truth, etc. Do, does a, a living, healthy tradition need shared, uh, what should we call them, texts? So what is handed, what comes to us, agama, uh, agama in, in, in Pali, is, uh, in Sanskrit, is, is often the word uh, used for, for the text, the suttas. It means literally what has come, what has arrived, what has, uh, what has been received, so to speak. So th- th- there is some body of received um, text. It could be oral, or it doesn't have to be written, of course, oral text. And that body forms um, a focus and a reference point and um, hopefully rich material for study um, so, uh, so there's a, pro- a possible process of getting more acquainted with uh, more steeped in developing understanding of, of this material, this agama, this text or received teachings. But not only study, also for veneration. And we can put that in inverted commas. So that might have uh, a certain uh, very obviously religious character so that a, a, a piece of text is venerated to the extent that it's put in a stupa and people circumambulate the, the stupa or kiss the text or bow down to, to to the text, even if they're not even practicing it or don't even understand what it says. It could be that kind of religious um, uh, kind of veneration. Or it could just be veneration in the sense of one respects the authority of that text and it holds a certain uh, kind of... Im- immovable or unbudgeable power. One has to reckon with what's written in that text. So text, received teachings, oral or written, um, for study, for veneration, and for also for interpretation, or interpretations, plural. And so there's, there's I really want to come back to this, to what extent uh, there needs to be some that 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 sort of focus material uh, needs to be uh, to a certain extent or does it need to be to, a, to to what extent does it need to be open to interpretations in, interpretation and a plurality of interpretations um, so that it's not just a one dimensional one uh, unilinear uh, uh, text or material is there something in the vitality and health of tradition that actually needs um, a sort of root texts to be core text, canonical text, to, to have a certain uh, openness to them, or to be related to as if they had a certain openness? I'm going to come back to this, but there's perhaps a certain tension between uh, latitude of interpretation and, if you like, the, the, the letter, if that's the right way of putting it. Um, so that there's the letter, there's the text, there's the teaching, there's the recording, there's the oral transmission or whatever. And then there's a la- a la- is there a latitude of interpretation? I want to come back to that point later. Or another way of saying it might be that does there need to be 
something in the tradition, not necessarily someone, but something that is regarded as authoritative somehow. The authority resides in that text, if not in that person or persons or body or hierarchy or whatever, in that text. Does there need to be something that's regarded as authoritative? And, and in that way, functions as a kind of, as I said, immovable kind of anchor, something one needs to reckon with. Um, but is there a tension between that need for something authoritative, and I'll put that word authoritative also in inverted commas, uh, on the one hand, and also a need for some autonomy um, of the individuals who are involved in that tradition, who are who are members, if you like, of that tradition. So, is there is there is there some kind of tension? Are both these elements um, needed? Something needs to be authoritative, maybe some authoritative, maybe someone as well, maybe just something like a text. And there needs to be some autonomy allowed, some wiggle room, some latitude of movement, of interpretation, of practice, of, of all that. Maybe. How much diversity uh, does there need to be? Is there a minimum amount of diversity in the tradition that's needed? Is there a maximum amount? Um, what kinds of diversity? Diversity of all kinds. So not just um, uh, personalities and ethnicities and gender and sexual orientations and, and all that, um, but all kinds. So even a diversity, for example, of directions within the tradition. So there are suttas in the Pali canon, I can't find them right now, but there's suttas in the Pali canon where... Um, the Buddha is talking to someone and he says, look, look at, here's my disciples gathered in Jetta's Grove or wherever it is, on a, someone's park or somewhere where they're all staying. The Buddha is staying with a bunch of monks and perhaps nuns. And, uh, actually, they probably wouldn't stay with the nuns, would they? But um, anyway, back then. Uh, the Buddha is there and he says, look, here, here, over there in that corner or in that part of the field or that part of the forest, there's, there's the, the group of uh, monks who are, in, who are sitting with Moggallana, one of the Buddha's two chief disciples. Uh, they're sitting with Moggallana. Uh, they're interested in developing their, para, their um, uh, siddhis, their, their Kind of super normal powers, their psychic powers. And there, over there, are the monks sitting with so-and-so, and they're interested in developing this. And over there are the monks sitting with Sariputra, and they're interested in developing jhana, or, or whatever it was. So that within, uh, within the larger community, in the larger tradition, there's a diversity also of directions of what people want to develop, and that's available. Uh, within that range, as a uh, as a range of choices, or within the community, as a range of choices, and to what extent does a living tradition need to uh, include both people who are, let's say, uh, further along the path? 
um, more advanced, more senior, if you like, um, and as well as those who are newer, who are more junior, who are newer to the teachings, who are just beginning, who are who are not so developed in their understanding and practice and knowledge. So you can already hear. So. So let's just put things in a box. What do we mean by tradition? But you can already hear, I hope, in, in what I was saying. It's like, hmm, no, none of these is actually simple. We could just say, oh, tradition, it involves this, this, this. And, and as I said, I'm not trying to be comprehensive. But none of those, when you actually pause to consider uh, what what's involved or what might be involved or what's healthy there and what's kind of uh, become too much, or is not enough. None of these are simple. None of these elements are actually simple at all. But one of the questions I have uh, for us to consider, and again, if you love and if you're in love with practice and teachings, this these questions, if they're not right now, they will be important to you one day. But one of the questions I want to ask is, what we're talking about, okay, these are the shared elements that need to be there for a living, healthy tradition. If we turn it around and say, what differences, what absences of shared ground become fatal for a tradition? Fracture it too much, render it uh, dead or lifeless or stagnant or, um, or just kind of explode it in some way or another. So that's a question I have. And again, I think at this point in history, if we can uh, use that word, uh, use that idea of a time in history, um, it's a questionable one, that's an interesting question to me. Um, so, for example, and as I mentioned uh, in the other talk, I can't remember which one, about the, you know, if you're going to practice soul-making dyad or a triad or whatever is a group doing soul-making practice together, and there's not the con- shared conceptual framework, uh, it might not work. Uh, it might be frustrating, disappointing, etc. It also the necessity or the need, this strange thing, even for, for deep friendship, to share ontological commitments regarding uh, the world, cosmology, regarding the nature of human beings. So would, the, would that be an example, say ontological commitments, would that be an example of some, of some aspect, the absence of which as a shared ground, when when ontological commitments are not shared or don't overlap enough, that actually becomes fatal for the, the uh, for a tradition because it's because the relationships uh, can't really flourish and uh, the the difference is so basic there uh, in. This ontological, this set of ontological commitments versus that set of ontological commitments. The, the difference is so basic that it forms a kind of um, fracture that becomes an abyss, and two camps within a tradition are, are actually uh, hardly constitute a coherent tradition anymore.
So all these things we can throw in the pot, and as actually, very quickly, we start to realize, hmm, none of these is actually simple. They all bear further reflection, further consideration, further opening out and uh, feeling into. <clears throat> some, some, some aspects might be a little less obvious of, again, this <clears throat> what's involved or what's necessary what's needed uh, and what's necessary to be included in a living, healthy tradition. And some things might be a lot less obvious than some of those, some of the lists that I've just sort of gone through quite quickly. So I have a question. Is it necessary, does a living, healthy tradition, a vital tradition, does it need some element of mystery or something that is mysterious, perhaps even to the point of relative incomprehensibility. Uh, that could range from, yeah, the sort of more poetic to the completely uh, almost opaque. So does it need some element of, of mystery, of something that's not clearly comprehensible? It's a question. That element is, to me at least, less apparent in, say, Pali Canon Buddha Dharma as it's come to us, certainly in the West. Um, in, some, in some living traditions in, say, Southeast Asia, say, Thailand and Cambodia, the actual tradition of Pali Canon Buddhism is so wrapped up with other influences. So, for example, um, uh, in Cambodia, there was there was actually Mahayana uh, for at some point in history for a while. So, there's a lot of Mahayana teachings wrapped up in Cambodian Buddhism. There's the the uh, vestiges of that are still alive and color and shape and influence the the tenor and thrust and range <coughs> and um, quality of, of Cambodian Theravada Buddhism, so-called. In Thailand, if you talk to people who've been monks and nuns in Thailand, Westerners, you know, it's totally imbued. It's, it's still ret retained, for example, the belief that you find all over the Pali Canon, the belief in devas and angels and wood spirits and uh, the, the, the spirit of this tree and the deva that lives in that forest, and etc., and that's very much part of the whole tenor, flavor, range, color of of, of that um, of that version of, of Theravada Buddhism. But as we've received it in the West, it's less apparent, this sort of element of mystery. It's become more a kind of a presentation of some something that's sort of more uh, clear-cut, rational, it seems to me. Uh, but it may still be there. If I, if I look in other traditions, and this, this actually occurred to me because I was reading the translator's introduction of a book <coughs> called um, Gates of Light, Shari Ora, uh, by uh, Joseph Gikatila, who's a medieval um, Jewish, Jewish teacher. And the translator, Avi Weinstein, was commenting that... <coughs> This book was written 
at around the same time as the um, as as the Zohar. Uh, Zohar sometimes means something like Book of Splendor or Radiance. Um, it was written around the same time, this book by Joseph Kikatila called The Gates of Light, Shari Oran. And but there were there were two differences, and those differences became uh, were very influential in the subsequent histories and receptions of those two books, the the Zohar and Rabbi Gikatila's book uh, Shari or Gates of Light. And just to name two of the differences, so one was that uh, the well, three differences, let's say. One was that um, the Zohar was actually written. At around the same time in the, in, in twelve hundred or thirteen hundred, I can't remember exactly. Thirteenth um, <clears throat> century uh, Castile, uh, Provence, Castile, that that kind of area, and was was written at that time, but was presented. It was uh, faked, if you like, ostensibly uh, to be a rediscovered text that was. It was presented as a rediscovered text that was um, written in the second century, so hundreds and hundreds of years early. It was presented, uh, scholars are now pretty unanimous, it was definitely written in 13th century uh, Provence, Castile, Catalonia, wherever, and but it was presented by its author, or main author, authors, as being an ancient text that was unearthed. Um, secondly, it was written in Aramaic, which was no longer a vernacular, it was no longer a current language, and it was written in a kind of, um, what would you say, uh, um, kind of also a fairly abstruse Aramaic, in, in a strange kind of version of the language. And thirdly, it uh, it's... It's a very opaque text. It's it's um, strange. What does this mean? What are they talking about? Um, it's full of kind of po- poetry and symbolism that one's not quite sure what they're referring to, and multi-leveled densities of allusions. It's a very um, mystical, poetic text. Gates of Light, on the other hand, Rabbi Gikatila's text was uh, attempted to be. It was written in contemporary language easy to understand, a clear exposition, uh, taking one through stages of was ostensibly similar-ish material in terms of Jewish uh, mysticism and mystical teachings and Kabbalah. Ironically, perhaps from a certain point of view, what happened historically was that Gates of Light, Shariara, this clear um, text written in contemporary languages, uh, language, designed to be e- easy to understand, etc., became not very popular at all. Uh, kind of, uh, not that many people read it. Um, <clears throat> whereas the Zohar became uh, an incredibly popular text, um, venerated, as I said, studied, um, commentary upon commentary written upon it. Um, it became almost canonical, uh, not without some contention, almost canonical in in the tradition, uh, in the Jewish re- religion. 
and um, and garnered you know great great respect and, and veneration there, despite the fact, or, or even by some people who could not understand the language in it, the Aramaic, and certainly by many people who uh, it remained even if they could understand the Aramaic, it made really pretty baffling what it was talking about. Um, you could also say it was open um, because of its poetic nature, because of its um, uh, the, the, the mysterious language, because of the mystery of what it meant, because because of all that, uh, it then it it could become an object for eros. It could um, contain within its sort of depths and mysteries and darknesses and illusions and poetry, um, it could allow a wider latitude of interpretation, an infinity of interpretation. It could become, because of its depths and mysteries, um, because it was kind of unfathomable, because one couldn't just simply reduce it, because it had the beyonds, it could become an object uh, of the erotic imaginal. One could have eros, and it itself becomes an imaginal object, the Zohar, this book, this teaching, this tradition. And because it was ancient, or because it was presented as ancient, it could quickly have the, the kind of, uh, it could quickly kind of accrue the kind of, attract the kind of eros for the ancient, because ancient implies the tradition. And as I said, the fantasy um, will, where there's love, the, the, the fantasy of tradition, the self in relation to the tradition and to the history in the past, and the fantasy of the past, the fantasy of the characters in the past. You know, part, partly the Zohar is the kind of, the, not really chronicle, but it involves passages relating the sort of wandering through Galilee of a, a small band of um, mystics and their uh, visiting different places in, in this beautiful land and discussing uh, different interpreta mystical interpretations of Torah and uh, things like that. So again, in the fantasy of tradition, it involves, uh, if I have a love of a tradition, it involves me having, it involves characters from that history, from that tradition, becoming imaginal characters for me that I have eros towards, that are important to me. So because of it, it was presented as ancient, because also of the kind of relative obfuscation and opacity of it, because it wasn't clear, it allowed more interpretation, it had these dimensions of unfathomability, etc. So it's interesting, and also in the language, in the poetic language, and the lack of clarity in the language. Very interesting. I have this question. Does a living, healthy tradition... Uh, if it wants to have rich soil, does it need also elements that are mysterious, even incomprehensible, certainly poetic? And um, so less obvious, certainly in some of what we have come to receive in the West as Pali Canon Buddhism, maybe less apparent there. But certainly if you look at other Mahayana Buddhism um, as it's practiced in, in the West, um, Vajrayana Buddhism, absolutely. You know, the original tantric texts um, are so baffling to us. If you read, if you, sort of, if you pick up the, I don't know, the Guya Samaja Tantra or something, 
and and read just a, a translation of it, it's it's pretty out there and baffling. And what are they talking about? Why are they talking about this? And um, who are what, what's it supposed to? Um, how am I supposed to relate to all this? And so, what's very common in the Vajrayana tradition is less to for people to read texts in their original, but to read commentaries on the commentaries, or the commentaries on the text, and even commentaries on the commentaries has become much more usual. And the commentaries, if you think about, um, there was actually two Chandrakirtis, two famous Chandrakirtis in the history of Buddhism, and the second Chandrakirti was uh, famous for his tantric commentaries, in particular on the Guya Samaja Tantra. And there, as in uh, in the Jewish tradition, there's four levels of commentary. Uh, so each sentence, even each word, has kind of four levels, gives given four levels of meaning. And again, right there, and similarly in Kabbalistic interpretations or commentaries on the Bible, and they talk about the obvious meaning, the hidden meaning, uh, etc., the symbolic meaning. Um, so the commentaries themselves become rich. The text itself, because of its strangeness and its mysteriousness and its partial incomprehensibility, its poetic nature, um, lends itself, offers itself as as a as a as a as a soil for uh, for image, for eros, but also for the proliferation of 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 growth out of that soil, further interpretation, the richness of that, interpretations, commentaries upon commentaries, um, multiple perspectives, etc. And the mystery never goes, because the core text remains uh, mysterious and open. Or if you think about in Christianity, you know, um, St. John's Gospel, of the four canonical Gospels in in Christianity, uh, leave aside the apocryphal uh, text, but of the four canonical Gospels, St. John's Gospel is is really the odd one out. It uh, reads so differently, it's so mystical in its flavor and in what it says, and even the opening um, sentences is very famous, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, and uh, etc. What's it talking about? And um, uh, and I can't remember now exactly. And the word was in darkness, and the darkness shall not overcome it, etc. Uh, the darkness did not overcome it. Um, so the mystery of that kind of text, um, you know, that may be, or the question is, how necessary is that kind of strand and text within the body of a healthy tradition or again in, tr- in christianity and the whole theology that goes with the trinity so trinitarian theology the father the son and the holy ghost the holy spirit um it's mysterious and so what you get is lots of interpretations lots of um theories, lots of rational explanations, but it remains at its core a kind of mystery which retains its mysteriousness, its unfathomability, its beyond, its poetic, um, or at a minimum, its poetic nature, at at maximum, its sort of um, mystical impenetrability, if you like. 
So that's a question. Something, again, in this, in this consideration, in this laying out, this unearthing and bringing to light that I would like to, uh, to do together with you tonight. Um, you know, it's in a way obvious to say that a tradition is, is set in, uh, it is, is part of a, a larger culture. And in a way it contributes to that culture. Sometimes it contributes in very obvious and, and large ways, sometimes uh, less obvious. Even if the tradition is very much a fringe tradition and very much against the stream, so to speak, of the larger larger so, uh, society and culture, it's still the fact that a tradition is embedded in a culture, it's part of and it contributes to that wider culture. But... Uh, the opposite is also true, so vice versa. Um, the culture uh, contributes to tradition, uh, whatever that tradition is, the tradition of t- teachings or, or practices, etc. The culture, the contemporary culture, and the history of that culture contributes and forms part of and certainly shapes and informs the tradition. So that's probably obvious. I imagine it's obvious. Um but again, c- can we unpack that a little more and uh, kind of amplify our considerations of that fact uh, and our awareness of it? So again, if we look at um, other traditions, uh, let's say Judaism, uh, there was the, what should we say, the importing, the confluence, uh, the inclusion, the integration, the digestion, assimilation, the reckoning with um, Greek philosophy, principally Plato and Aristotle, into the the body of the Jewish tradition. So as far as I understand, the first person to do this was Philo of Alexandria, um, who's not well known, but is beginning to attract more attention just by virtue of the fact that he was the first person to do that, to really consider the whole Jewish uh, teachings and traditions and the Torah and all that in the light of um, uh, Plato's teaching, particularly, and to try and present them, to present the Jewish teachings uh, to uh, Greeks and Greek culture uh, in a way that would be understandable for them. So he, he was quite a significant figure um, because he was the first person in Western history to do that. And that movement of kind of integration of either or both of Plato and Aristotle as thought and philosophy and views into Judaism, into uh, uh, Christianity, into Islam, that it was a undeniable fact, an important event, an important process in all those three religions, all those three traditions. And so he was the first person to do that. And then successively, uh, there are different periods in history where an even further integration happened. So again, going back to the Zohar and um, the sort of blossoming, if you like, 
or birth uh, of uh, Kabbalistic teachings in Judaism in the uh, 13th, 12th, 13th centuries in southwestern Europe principally. Um, they were also very much influenced uh, by Neoplatonic teachings. So there was really, I mean, influence is even an understatement, there was a, a marriage, an integration, a mingling, a birth, a co-opting um, of, of those, those Neoplatonist teachings within, within the Jewish teachings, a reconfiguring, a representation, a rethinking of um, Jewish mystical teachings from with with an incorporation of neoplatonic teachings um a little later i can't remember the dates exactly but somewhere in the in the, in the middle ages um maimonides uh, was a, also a famous jewish teacher rabbi uh, who wrote a lot very influential and he favored more aristotle's teachings so what you also get in in the three abrahamic religions is a sort of wrestling with or contest or dispute between two different influences from from Greek philosophers. One, one camp, let's say, more influenced by Plato, one camp more influenced by Aristotle. To complicate things, there were texts that were um, believed to have been written by Aristotle that were actually Platonic, and they were misattributed, so people were quoting Aristotle uh, or thinking they were quoting Aristotle and claiming they were quoting Aristotle when it was actually a platonic teaching etc um, but all this all this all, all this material was worked into the clay into the fabric of of Judaism of Christianity of Islam um, so in Christianity um, I'm not quite sure where Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine, stood with this because he grew up in a pagan culture, so would have been fam very familiar with Platonic teachings, etc., but uh, then converted to Christianity and exactly how he viewed that relationship or how or whether they were integrated or not, I'm not sure, but certainly Pseudo-Dionysus, who I've mentioned, uh, was very um, pl platonically influenced and he became very his teachings became very influential in the church I think he's from the fifth century um, Thomas Aquinas in in uh, middle ages enormously influential and really very consciously borrowing from working with um, relying on the teachings of Aristotle and Aristotelian philosophy for his interpretation and his kind of remodeling of Christian theology and philosophy and thinking. Um, so all that that enormous integration, influence, incorporation of uh, Plato and Aristotle's thought into the three Abrahamic religions. And I don't know, I mean, for me, I, I almost try to imagine, say, those religions without those influences. And... It's hard to imagine. It's so different. And I can, my gut reaction is they just don't attract me. They, they are with, without those kind of more sophisticated developments um, and integrations of the thought of, say, Plato, uh, for example. To add to that, um, again, if we just take 
the Jewish tradition as an example, there was, of course, people traveled and they talked with each other and they met. And, and at some periods and places in history, the inter-religious dialogue was very open and very encouraged and very, very fertile so that you get uh, what historians and academics are now tracing. Oh, that's a, that's a Sufi influence. That practice or that view uh, came into Jewish mystical teachings um, via via the Sufis. There was obviously some meeting, some dialogue, some learning even between uh, the uh, Jewish Kabbalists and the Sufis, and perhaps there were influences both ways. And uh, of course, when you get into Christian Kabbalah, it's rooted in Jewish Kabbalah, etc. But but all this exists, and it's just part of it's it's kind of an inevitable part of history. Um, of the history of a tradition that the culture contributes and contributes sometimes in ways that are absolutely fundamental, uh, really uh, almost like change the constitution of, of that religion and the sort of fundamental tenets really. It can be wrapped up in the same vocabulary but the whole thinking behind it is uh, the structures, the conceptual structures uh, is different. And then there's, what I'm partly asking is, what's the implications of that? What are the implications of that fact? So don't think that this just applies to uh, non-Buddhist traditions uh, in the past. It's still going on, still going on today in the Abrahamic religions. And you only need to look at modern Western Buddhism, I think. Uh, you have to think what you think. But our modern Western Buddhism, the insight meditation tradition and, and other contemporary traditions in the West, includes so much of what has become kind of commonplace, accepted uh, psych psychological concepts and notions and beliefs, aspirations, uh, regularities in the sense of like, this is healthy, this is not healthy. It's when we talked about self and actually the whole notion of self uh, that we not just believe and think, but we actually feel is is culturally conditioned. And, and what we regard as the, uh, what's a healthy self, what's healthy relationship. All this is very much given to us by the contemporary Western culture of, say, the last, I don't know, 100 and 20 years, 150 years or so, you know, since Freud and everything that came out of that. And that's, for the most part, really wrapped up. Sometimes it's uh, more to the fore, and a teacher will kind of really incorporate those considerations of, of sort of mainstream psychology much more obviously into their Dharma teaching. But even if it's not, it's there in the background. Um, in, in influencing, informing, uh, being incorporated. Uh, modern Western Buddhism might also, I think, a lot of it includes, uh, or it's very common to find mixed in elements of what's really kind of Advaita Vedanta. Uh, it's really kind of, um, you, you know, it's, you, you can um, say, locate passages in Buddhist texts which sort of seem to be saying something similar. Um, but you can also make a strong case, well, actually, this isn't the Buddhist teaching. This is, this, is, this is someone else. 
This is Advaita Vedanta teachings. But that's, again, quite very common for that to have become absorbed in, in, modern, in the presentation of modern Western Dharma. I'm not sure, is the other Diamond Heart teachings, the Ridwan teachings, are they, um, for some teachers, are they sort of incorporated, mixed in, in a way, in the presentation of Buddha Dharma that's becoming, <clears throat> in a way, you can't really see the seams and the divisions. They become part of what the Dharma is. Neuroscientific notions, beliefs, points of view, models, how much has that come into <clears throat> our way of thinking? Again, sometimes it's really explicit. A teacher will really present that <clears throat> as some parallel or evidence or explanation of how 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 what a jhana is or how mindfulness is working or what mindfulness does or wh- whatever it is. Or it's just there in the background as a kind of backdrop belief of what a human being is, really. So very much in the present, I think it's it's already there. The, the the contribution of culture, the mixing, the infiltration, the forming of um, contemporary Dharma tradition, or the state of the Dharma tradition at the moment, uh, by c- cultural uh, conditions, artifacts, um, trends. And certainly, um, if you look about the, <clears throat> the development of Buddhist Tantra, there used to be a popular case or popular claim that Buddhist Tantra was just a co-opting of Hindu Tantra and therefore a kind of um, uh, the assimilation of something alien and impure and a kind of <clears throat> an impurity coming into uh, Buddhism from Hinduism, if Hinduism is even the right word. But um, more careful scholarship shows that's actually not not the case. And Buddhist Tantra is actually very influential on Hindu Tantra. As time went by, I'm sure they influenced each other. Um, So there's this kind of... uh, Sometimes it's just osmosis. Sometimes it's more a a, a deliberate, very worked-out reckoning. Um, So, for example, with some of what I alluded to in, in the history of Judaism uh, with Neoplatonism and Kabbalah and, and Philo and Maimonides and Christianity with Aquinas, etc. It's a, it's a very deliberate, careful integration and reckoning and a sense of this needs to be included. These developments need to be included. We need to integrate them. We need to consider them. And sometimes it's much more of just a kind of osmosis, almost almost blind. So as I said, hopefully that's obvious to you, but what if we just, again, unpack it and consider it more, really hold it in our attention? What does this imply? What does this ask of us? How do we feel about this? What's my view of this? And of course, uh, the contemporary culture is also a formative condition even when uh, those in the tradition or or a founding member of the tradition is fighting against the contemporary culture, just by virtue of it being an opposition or a foil or something to contrast oneself with, it, it becomes a formative influence in a kind of, I don't know what you call it, a negative way. So and I, I think I've shared this before, but I remember hearing about... Uh, 
the, the Vedic or Brahminical teaching of uh, practice of keeping three fires burning. I don't know if people did this in their house or in the temple or what. And uh, these three fires are in the Vedic religion and rituals uh, were part of the creation myth. So I, I don't quite know the details or I've forgotten them. But one was supposed to keep them burning. And in keeping them burning, one actually sustained the functioning and the order and the life of the cosmos. That the, the sun would come up tomorrow, that it would rain, etc. And they were representative, these fires, or even constitutive somehow, of um, elements of the Vedic creation myth. Um, so that in, in perpetuating, keeping these fires from going out, and keeping them lit, one was um, participating in, uh, in, in, the, in the recreation, the ongoing life of the cosmos. And, and all that was rooted in a certain uh, belief, or we now call it a myth of creation, of the creation of the cosmos. And the Buddha came along at that time, and of course there were a lot of people around who were practicing in that way, keeping these fires lit. And he took uh, that and sort of turned it on its head and said, actually, you know, you don't want to keep three fires alight. You want to extinguish three fires. You want to put out three fires. And he equated the three fires with three kilesas, three defilements, greed, uh, aversion, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion, or ignorance. And so actually what you want to do is extinguish these fires. You want to extinguish, uh, get rid of, stamp out um, greed, hatred, and delusion, so much so that they never come back. And the word, the, one of the etymologies of Nibbana, some of you will know, is, is to blow out a fire. It's the extinction of a fire. So that uh, full awakening, one of the sort of definitions of it is the extinction of greed, aversion, delusion, Nibbana, the extinction of these fires. So he took something that was around him in the contemporary culture that had a certain influence and clout and popularity in contemporary consciousness and he um, opposed it. He spun it a different way. We're not trying to create more. We're trying to end creation, get off the birth, uh, get off the wheel of, of birth and death, of rebirth. When I heard that, it just, uh, one of the things that occurred to me was, uh, that's really interesting, how conditioned, even by opposition, or through opposition, the Buddhist teachings were. So if, for example, the Vedic myth had of creation had had two fires in it, and the practice of the the Brahmins and the, and the Vedic um, religion uh, had this uh, pr uh, ritual of keeping two fires going, or four fires going, as as opposed to three, would we then have had a Dharma that had four kilesas or two kilesas, dependent on the the, the situation in in the contemporary culture? You understand? I mean, certainly a case can be made anyway uh, uh, to, to reduce them to two anyway, um, because one could say greed and aversion are just two sides of the same coin. When we're aversive to something, we're actually greedy for something else. When we're greedy for something, we're actually averse, averse for its opposite. 
when I'm aversive to pain, it's because I, I want uh, pleasure or neutrality or whatever. When I um, am after uh, whatever is pleasant taste, I don't want the absence of pleasant taste. And I certainly don't want unpleasant taste. But anyway, that, what my main point is really about the cultural conditioning, the, cult, the formative influences of culture, even when they're in opposition. And something similar is true about the 12 links of dependent origination. It's a very central, absolute, both these ideas are, these Dharma concepts, three kilesas and extinguishing them, and the 12 links of dependent origination. The 12 links of dependent origination were also uh, uh, 12 um, aspects of a Vedic creation myth. So again, the Buddha was in a culture where that was the belief, that was the dominant kind of paradigm presentation. And his teaching was formed, uh, he wanted to differentiate it from that, spin it a different way. So again, the creation myth saying, yeah, you know what you're creating with those 12 links? You're creating dukkha. That's what you're creating. Let's, let's not create. Let's stop creating. Let's stop uh, those 12 links. And, and they have pretty much the same names, even, I think, uh, for the most part, as those 12 links uh, or 12 elements of the Vedic creation myth. I have a strong suspicion, I don't know, but I have a strong suspicion that the same is somehow true of the five aggregates. You know, I'm not the first person to comment, uh, not the first practitioner, but also not the first teacher to comment that they're kind of it's a strange system when you look at the aggregates, like it doesn't really fit together um, as a sort of human psychology. Like, why those divisions? What a strange thing. Is it just the case that these were the primary elements of human being, if you like, that were at that time, at the Buddha's time, popular, uh, popular sort of um, appropriation points for the sense of self so that people would either claim that they were the body um, there was a philosophy that we are the body that was certainly one philosophy that existed uh, certainly I know another philosophy that existed at that time another teaching another religious tradition at the time was um, no your true nature is is bliss uh, in other words pleasant Vedana or obviously consciousness or uh, intention, which might be a little more close to some contemporary cycles. You are your, your mental formations and your intentions, or even perception. People would have certain um, jhanic perceptions. So, for example, one will come to the seventh jhana, nothingness, and, and one would take that to be who one was. So these were these were extant teachings. These were current contemporary teachings in different of the spiritual traditions and philosophies around at the time of the Buddha. So I don't know. Did he originate the teachings of the five aggregates, or did he just look around him and kind of see? Oh, okay, so this school is identifying with that. That school is identifying with that, claiming that to be the true self. That school is identifying that to be the true self. That school is identifying this to be the true self, and just collect them together for the purposes of saying, you know what, none of these are. Again, it's a, it's a, it's a, a Dharma concept that, um, that was formed, or perhaps it's a Dharma concept that was formed in opposition, but still culturally conditioned. 
But if all that is the case, then we say, how real are these things? I mean, we can see they're not real because of emptiness and the, the kind of uh, reflection that, when I said greed and aversion are two sides of the same coin, lots of other ways they're not real. Any of these links and deep practice into emptiness will show exactly that. There are no aggregates, really. There are no links of dependent origination, really. Uh, there are no kilesas, really. They don't form clear-cut, demarcated things. They have no independent existence. But we can add a kind of another level of, if you like, emptiness and say, uh, they're also culturally conditioned. How real are they? So easily in our minds, they can become kind of uh, dogmas or truths as if they're real, as if they're referring to real things. But there's this, uh, the, the, the larger point here is, um, well, no, that, that's an important point too, but uh, just to point out that um, cultural con conditioning can happen via opposition, via uh, a tradition wanting to um, <clears throat> demarcate itself, differentiate itself from what is around it. You know, um, or it's uh, wanting to push off in a different direction. So this can happen in all kinds of different ways. Just the other day, I was talking with someone who works. His job is working with the um, Dalit Buddhist communities in in places in India. So, as some of you probably know, there's. Um, Dr. Ambedkar um, was a Hindu and converted to Buddhism and uh, was there's a movement of untouchables, if you know the Indian caste system, there's a sort of gross injustice there um, that a certain, there's a tiered hierarchy of the, of the castes and classes in India and, and the lowest class is even lower than the lowest class is untouchables. They're outside, they're outside of the caste. And actually that whole thing is very much drawn along ethnic lines. So it's basically an, uh, uh, a metaphysically, um, supposedly metaphysically backed institutional raci raci racism and social injustice that you know has gone on for centuries, millennia, um, and in converting some of these people, uh, in, in in some of these people, untouchables converting to Buddhism, they then fall outside of the scope of the Hindu caste system. Um, so. And this person was saying, actually, in working with those communities, he, he was sort of thinking about me because a lot of the teaching of the Buddhism that they um, propagate in, 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 in that Dalit community of converts is a kind of rational, secular Buddhism. And he said, I thought of you because I know that you, um, you know, you've sort of contested that a little bit, the, the, uh, the whole premises and objectives of secularism and even secular Buddhism, etc. But uh, I thought immediately, wow, well, hold on, it, it's all contextual. And I, we spoke about it and said, it's all contextual. In other words, and I've said this before, I see whatever I teach as, as utterly contextual. 
In other words, what I say, what emphasis, what even direction the teachings evolve in um, is is dependent on the context. So I find myself in situations where I'm talking in the West, um, almost exclusively in the West, to... um, to people who live in a predominantly secular culture of secular modernity and um, and in a situation where that kind of ideation, both within and outside of Buddha Dharma, has an enormous clout. Uh, and so in a way, the whole soul-making Dharma teachings, or much of it, is, is placed in that context and in response, let's say in dialogue with or it, the, the dominance of that kind of um, thinking of secular modernity. <clears throat> Were I or we in a, in a situation where, like the untouchables in India, where one's actually um, being subject to great injustice, massive, I mean, unthinkable injustice, based on some kind of metaphysical mumbo-jumbo and uh, the sort of hyped-up, mysterious authority of a certain spirituality and cosmology. And might the soul-making teachings, the soul-making dharma, actually be given quite a different spin or have a whole different element in them because they would be in that context and then responding to that and the dominance of that paradigm, etc. So, laying some things out, where does it land? Where does it, how does it sit with you, all this? So all kinds of influences, uh, both through integration, but also through kind of opposition, integration through opposition, if you like, um, from, from culture. Again, if we if we cast our eyes about us in, in contemporary um, Buddha Dharma and um, or even wider than Buddha Dharma, uh, we see um, the you know, prevalence of mindfulness teachings, which is wonderful in, in the West and is doing so much uh, to help so many people. And there's a whole range of, of those, um, the way it's presented and the context in which it's presented. And I. I know only very little about it because I'm not really in that world. Um, but there's some kind of more of the more on the pop end of things, if you like, pop mindfulness, um, where I've come across mindfulness being defined as non-judgmental awareness, and that definition has actually become quite prevalent in uh, in. Sometimes even within Buddhism, like it's sort of fed back into Buddhism, um, in, in what might be called Buddha Dharma, as well as secular mindfulness, etc. Um, not everywhere, just certain strands. Um, non-judgmental awareness. So, defining it that way again can be enormously helpful. But uh, again, if if we think about this question of tradition, very quickly, you you you, you should uh, understand or or realize that. Um, Yes, that can be very helpful. And why is it helpful? It's helpful partly because of our culture of judgmentalism. So again, even that formulation of the tradition was formed in a context. But then if you study, let's say, the Satipatthana Sutta, the the, the original discourse on mindfulness, you realize, wow, not only that definition of mindfulness as, say, non-judgmental awareness or presence, um, 
but also the range of those teachings, it leaves out so much of what's in in the basic fundamental discourse on mindfulness, which is only a few pages long. So completely gone are, for example, the uh, death reflections and and the, ima- the the vivid imagination of of one's death and one's rotting corpse, etc. Um, the whole section on foulness of the body. Um, what seems to be gone sometimes is the whole fourth foundation of mindfulness, um, which so there's non-judgmental awareness of body sensations, non-judgmental awareness of um, feelings and pleasantness and impulses, non-judgmental awareness of thoughts and moods, mind states, etc. But the whole fourth foundation, which has a slightly different kind of tack and flavor, um, is often gone. Um, so again, if I read the fourth foundation about the fourth foundation of mindfulness in the Satipatthana Sutta, a lot of it is exactly what would be called um, uh, by some uh, teachers of modern mindfulness discrepancy-based processing, which I've touched on before in the Eros Unfettered talks. So that phrase, discrepancy-based processing, was again a kind of foil to the presentation of mindfulness. Mindfulness would discrepancy-based processing is supposed to be like, oh. Um, I'm in this moment thinking, oh, there's a, not thinking, but feeling, there's a discrepancy between what this moment is and what I would like it to be. And I'm processing or relating to or viewing, uh, sensing the moment through through a, a lens that's, discrep- uh, that's uh, you know, based on that discrepancy and, and kind of wanting or wanting to move towards what I think or feel the moment should be. <clears throat> and the teaching is, okay, that's fine. Sometimes when the tiger is chasing you, it's fine. When you have to catch your train on time, it's fine. Uh, whatever, some of that, to a certain extent, is important in life. But mindfulness is something different. Mindfulness is, non, is, 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 is non-discrepancy-based processing. But again, reading the fourth foundation, it's it's hard to take that uh, to take that conclusion away from it. The Buddha talks about feeding uh, the seven factors of awakening. What feeds them? What starves them? And you should you should feed them, and you should stop starving them, or the hindrances. So th- these are all categories in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The seven factors of awakening, hindrances, other, other things too. And very much the thrust of that teaching in the fourth foundation is about feeding and starving it's about doing it's about discrepancy why do i need to feed because there's a discrepancy in what the current state of how active and alive and well and flourishing are my factors of awakening and where they could be or where it would be better if they'd be or vice versa with the hindrances there's a lot of hindrances and it would be better. There's a discrepancy with where it would be better if they would be. So one is looking in terms of discrepancy and then instructed to act on that discrepancy in the direction of the, the, the sort of desired outcome. And a lot of the other concepts in the foundation and the fourth foundation are really what I would see as ways of looking or lenses anatta or um, in terms looking in terms of the aggregates looking in terms of the the six sense spheres and the or the, the 
the sense modalities. It's not bare attention. It's, it's attention through a certain lens. Why? Because that lens is liberating. Because it's a way of looking that liberates. It's a seeing that frees. Um, so that whole presentation that we get sometimes in uh, pop, pop mindfulness of mindfulness as non-judgmental awareness, you can I I think I know where it, where it comes from because because so many people struggle so much in our culture of uh, fractured communities, um, ego psychology, and and our uh, culture of individualism. There's so much pain that goes with. Um, that comes from judgment and self-judgment and judging oneself and one's experience and where one is. So it's understandable that mindfulness will be given that kind of, um, I say spin, but it's more than a spin. It's a kind of truncation, if you like. Um, yet when we compare it to uh, what we have of the, the original discourse, it's like, wow, it's really, uh, it really is a truncation and a kind of... Um, partial view at best. As I said, that foundation does have um, the, the, the encouragement um, and the directive to, to discern, to notice the difference between what is and what could be, what is and what it would be better if, if there was, um, and to direct oneself towards that and to, to, or, uh, to cultivating that, to cut this or that, to remove it, to strive to engender this or that. Now, I'm not saying this right now as a criticism of um, that kind of mindfulness. I'm, I'm really, really not um, uh, a criticism of even those kinds of popular mindfulness. I, um, I don't myself really have much enthusiasm uh, or kind of... Um, I don't put much uh, hope and investment in, or I don't. I don't think highly of this uh, sort of attempted project of what the Buddha really taught, and this kind of looking back in history and trying to kind of <coughs> shave off um, everything and kind of try and find uh, the original teachings pure. From any accretions, etc., any cultural conditionings, <clears throat> I don't. I don't subscribe to that project. I don't. I don't. Um, I think it's uh, not necessarily helpful, and or rather, it can be held in a way that's not necessarily helpful. <clears throat> I'm not that interesting. The, I've said this before, but Nietzsche has a phrase. I can't remember what the German is, but it translates as something like the fantasy of origins so that we believe that the original thing is better than the thing that developed over time. And of course, that's absolutely um, commonplace in, in the way that most people who are in a religious tradition think of a religious tradition. Of course, the Buddha's the real deal. Of course, the origin and the start is the real deal. Um, but might it be that the real deal is something that's grown into over time, like a human being, like anything else that could grow, that it's um, better or fuller or certainly richer, but um, almost like more 
real thing is more in, in what it moves towards over time, rather than at the origin. And anyway, the whole sort of, um, I say project of his history, histor historicizing, or, um, historiographing, or whatever, that whole project of can I look back with a historical lens and do that, um, is actually that, it's a project, like I would say, along with a number of other contemporary philosophers, that we, um, in the project of history, we project backwards. We can't help but bring our agendas, our spins, our perspectives, our contemporary perspectives, which are influenced by all kinds of things, cultural conditions, um, cultural valuings of what's important, what's significant, what's relevant, what's not relevant, our own personal psychologies, as alluded to all this, our motivations, um, so that what we select as a, as, a, as a central thread or a central teaching or a um, cult, or that's just a cultural accretion or that's an impurity or whatever, um, that's all very much conditioned by our own <clears throat> contemporary culture and um, by our own psychology. And we project that back. Um, so history, um, in a way, is not one thing. I'm referring back to what I said at the beginning of the talk. Is there a point in history that we can say, this is the point in history we're at now? And we can all agree, oh yes, that's the point of history we're at. There are histories, there are versions, there are spins, there are perspectives, there are stories woven, all coming... Um, in each case, from a different set of conditions that form that perspective, that those agendas, those spins, those uh, selection, selectings of certain threads, etc. Um, so, a quote from um, this guy's name, John Snyder, is the name's. It's from an introduction to a book uh, by Gianni Vattimo called *The End of Modernity*, and he uh, writes. Um, the work of such theorists as Michel Foucault, Michel de Certeau, I think you say, and Hayden White, on the rhetorical and literary elements present in historical writing has belatedly led to a widespread recognition of the narrative and therefore fictional basis of a unified image of history. History appears today, rather, as a kind of writing which persuades its readers through the use of carefully chosen rhetorical strategies of the truth of its account of events, truth in inverted commas. It's a kind of writing uh, which persuades its readers through the use of carefully chosen rhetorical strategies of, of the truth of its account of events. If I remember, um, some of you will be familiar with it, there's a book by Howard Zinn, um, a U.S. historian, that's called The People's History of the United States. And it's, what if you write a history of the United States that they don't teach in schools? A history written from the perspective of First Nations or from African Americans and the, 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 uh, who were slaves, etc. It's a very different history. So there are histories, there are stories, and the idea that there is one history and that we can kind of whittle it down and... and it, uh, find the pure uh, the, the pure truth of what was there at the beginning and um, I, I would question that 
And even if we could, is that necessary? As I said, is that also just a fantasy of origins, that it's the true thing or the real thing? The real Buddhism. The real Dharma. So anyway, that was slightly, um, slightly side point. Um, but uh, my point is, I'm not, I don't want to criticize so much that pop mindfulness, if we, if we even call it that, the, the very phrase pop mindfulness sounds critical, but um, I don't want to criticize that so much as point out the culturally conditioned interpretations and presentations of uh, Buddha Dharma. Uh, that, that that they are unavoidable. We are in that soup. We are, as Heidegger says, um, thrown. We're thrown into a certain context of history. We're thrown into certain cultures. And that cannot help but influence and shape and direct what we then see, how we relate to things, what we how we interpret things. <clears throat> So, again, I'm really just wanting to bring certain elements and aspects and considerations to light for your reflection, consideration. So what does all this imply to you? What are the implications? How does it land with you? How will you hold all this in your mind, in your heart, in your conceiving, in your view, in your orientations? What's your relationship to it? How does your heart feel? And what will we do with it in terms of moving forward? Some people uh, may be more, um, if you like, or think of themselves as a kind of purist. Now, I want the Buddha's original teaching stripped of everything might buy into that kind of fantasy of origin, might buy into the whole um, so-called historical project uh, without realizing the projections, might buy into the whole fantasy, what Nietzsche called the fantasy of origins. Is it, though I would ask, is it even possible um, to not be thrown? Is it is it possible to somehow divest oneself, to scrub oneself clean, to cut off and sunder um, all those cultural accretions and indoctrinations and learnings, perspectives, views, values that we have from, from, uh, from the culture so that we can, is it possible to do that, to not be thrown or to be thrown and then to somehow be uh, transcend one's throne, throne state? thrown into a culture, thrown into a time, thrown into a time in history, a place, a culture. Is that possible? We can do that, divest ourselves of that thrownness. And uh, can we um, have a perspective that isn't culturally conditioned? Or really, when we even try and do that, is there actually just a selective relinquishment? selective relinquishing of this cultural accretion, but I don't see this one that is still operating and driving me and shaping my view, my interest, what I pay attention to, what I don't see, etc. And then this question, 
uh, as I said, um, might it be that some of these cultural conditionings and accretions and integrations and shapings and influences are in fact improvements? How would we decide what determines that? And what's my loyalty? What's operating? Again, these are these end up being not just mental questions, certainly not abstract and not academic, and not even just mental. They end up being, they affect the heart and, and they'll affect the soul. Again, if we open up this whole um, pot of elements even more, lay it out even more, uh, again, to ask, okay, to what extent, maybe the whole talk is really lots of questions, to what extent um, do, does a, a living, healthy tradition need to share uh, those rattled off at the beginning in terms of the list of values, beliefs, ontological commitments, texts, etc., etc. To what extent and what is, how, how, how should we hold the, um, the conditionings and the shapings and the influences from culture, inevitable, both in history and contemporary? To what extent, here's a new question, to what extent is in fact conflict within a tradition, so to speak, a necessary part of that tradition being healthy and being alive and vital. So this, again, this to me is, is, is really interesting. And so I quote now from a philosopher called Alistair McIntyre. Some of you will know him. I think he's still alive. I can find that. Um, <clears throat> now, he writes in a book called After Virtue, which is quite a well-known book about ethics. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it, but uh, it was interesting in parts. Um, so he writes, I'll just quote a passage. It's a reasonably long passage, but still. Um, He's, saying, he's basically saying that when people talk about tradition, oftentimes it's sort of polarized between conservative uh, thinkers and those who are opposed to conservatism. Um, so particularly by conservative political theorists, etc. And so well, there's a way that they look at it that's a, a little bit um, misleading because of their, their ideological agenda. And he writes, characteristically, such theorists have followed Burke, Edmund Burke, in contrasting tradition with reason. And also uh, the stability of a tradition with conflict. So the contrast of tradition with reason. In other words, tradition is just received stuff that's not really had the scrutiny of rational thinking. And the stability of tradition, on the one hand, with kind of conflict. Conflict does not go with the stability of tradition. But uh, Alistair McIntyre continues, both contrasts obfuscate. They just confuse things. They, they hide a reality here. For all reasoning, he writes, takes place within the context of some traditional mode of thought, transcending through criticism and invention the limitations of what had hitherto been reasoned in that tradition. All reasoning takes place within the context of some traditional mode of thought. So he says, this is as true of modern physics as it is of medieval logic. 
Moreover, when a tradition is in good order, it is always partially constituted by an argument about the goods, the pursuit of which gives to that tradition its particular point and purpose. I'll say that in other language in case that's a little difficult. So, in other words, a healthy tradition, he's saying, when a tradition is in good order, part of what makes it healthy and in good order and alive is that it involves an argument. It's constituted by an argument about what? About the things that are valuable in that tradition, that give the tradition its point, its purpose. So, what is awakening? What are we trying to do? Where should practice lead? What does a good practitioner look like and do, etc.? That the argument, rather than being something that's, um, uh, you know, anathema to tradition, is actually part of a healthy tradition. So he continues, so when an institution, a university, say, or a farm or a hospital, is the bearer of a tradition of practice or practices, its common life will be partly, but in a centrally important way, constituted by a continuous argument as to what a university is and ought to be, or what good farming is, or what good medicine is. Traditions, when vital, embody continuities of conflict. Traditions, when vital, embody continuities of conflict. Indeed, when a tradition becomes Burkean, in other words, when there is that dichotomy between, okay, if it's a tradition, there's no reason, etc. If there's a tradition, if it's stable, there's no conflict. When a tradition becomes like that, becomes broken, it is always dying or dead. A living tradition, then, is an historically extended, socially embodied argument, and an argument precisely in part about the goods which constitute that tradition. In other words, what's valuable to that tradition, for that tradition. You understand? So this, to me, it's like, oh, yeah, right. It's, it's partly sort of semi-consciously obvious, but actually one needs to think about it a bit more. So, oh, yeah, that's actually really part of the weave, uh, the tapestry of what makes that a healthy tradition, a vital tradition. John Anderson said, don't ask of a social institution, in other words, a embodiment instrument of traditional part, an instrument of part of a tradition. Don't ask of a social institution what end or purpose does it serve, but rather ask of what conflicts is it the scene? Of what conflicts is it the scene? Now, that can, when you first hear it, sound, well, that's pretty pessimistic or even cynical. But seen in the light of what we've just been talking about, what Alistair McIntyre was explaining, the need for the necessity for conflict and argument with it in a tradition uh, it's not necessarily pessimistic or cynical at all and actually the philosopher A.M. Whitehead wrote something like a, a clash of doctrines is not a disaster it's an opportunity a clash of doctrines is not necessarily a disaster it can be an opportunity of course we I could go but we could go a bit further and say but what happens when I might ask, what happens when all that remains of tradition, of a tradition, are words and names? So if we, if we talk about Buddhist tradition, the word awakening, the word suffering. But the divergence of interpretations of what those words means has become so wide as to be an abyss. It's, it's, 
people are talking about completely different things when they're talking about uh, what what they think awakening is mean meaning or what the suffering means to them what what the goal is etc what you're relating to and trying to overcome so what when that divergence of a beginning becomes so wide that it becomes an abyss and attached to each interpretations are more fundamental metaphysical and cosmological views and fantasies I would say this is the case among certain, uh, definitely certain, the ones I know, contemporary traditions of Buddhism. That actually some of the rifts there, conceptually, have become close to too wide to navigate, in some cases. So what if that abyss uh, renders argument, the kind of argument Alistair McIntyre is saying is important, what if it renders argument either it's, it's either impossible? It's become too wide that you can't. There's, there's almost like very very little common ground even to, to have an argument that's fertile, um, or at least uh, seemingly, if not actually, pointless. Or uh, another possibility, and it may come out of the situation or the perception of the situation that I just described. That kind of thing. Another possibility may be that someone or some subgroup within a tradition either suddenly or gradually stop caring about their identity or stop identifying with that tradition so much that Eros has gone for the tradition and so the fantasy of the tradition goes as well because Eros and Imagine and the fantasy go together. And in not feeling so identified with that tradition and not really investing it with eros and imaginal perception, fantasy perception, they actually don't have the energy or the will or the desire to engage in the conflict, engage in the argument. And not engaging in the conflict and argument atrophies the tradition. Their withdrawal, their non-engagement in the conflict actually ends up lessening the tradition or impoverishing it or weakening it or sometimes just killing it. I'm going to read another passage by Alistair McIntyre from a different book, from, a, from an article. Um, he's kind of elaborating on this, this uh, point that overlaps here, but I think, I think, I think this point is really important. <clears throat> so this is from a, uh, an article called Epistemological Crises, Dramatic Narrative, and the Philosophy of Science. That's a mouthful. Um, so he writes, The connection between narrative and tradition has hitherto gone at almost unnoticed, perhaps because tradition has usually been taken seriously only by conservative social theorists. Again, so usually the people that talk about tradition are um, those with a vested interest or a certain spin on tradition and uh, what it needs to be and what it means, etc. But he continues, Yet these, those features of tradition which emerge as important when the connection between tradition and narrative is understood are ones which conservative theorists are unlikely to attend to. This is, this is the important point. For what constitutes a tradition is a conflict of interpretations of that tradition, 
and he adds, a conflict which itself has a history susceptible of rival interpretations. So I'm going to read that again. What constitutes a tradition is a conflict of interpretations of that tradition. A conflict which itself has a history susceptible of rival interpretations. In other words, not just the interpretation of the tradition and the text, etc., that I was talking about before, but also a conflict about how to read the history of that conflict. You understand? Conflict which itself has a history susceptible of rival interpretations. So even the whole argument can be seen from different perspectives. The history of that argument. Then he continues, If I am a Jew, I have to recognize that the tradition of Judaism is partly constituted by a continuous argument over what it means to be a Jew. I actually think a better example would be Buddhism. Um, but anyway, that's what he wrote. And then he says, Suppose I am an American. The tradition is one partly constituted by continuous argument over what it means to be an American and partly by a continuous argument of what it means to have rejected tradition. If I am a, an historian, I must acknowledge that the tradition of historiography, that means the writing of history, is partly but centrally constituted by arguments about what history is and ought to be. And he goes from Hume and Gibbon to uh, Namier and Edward Thompson. Uh, and he writes, he says, this also is a very important point. Notice that all three kinds of tradition, religious, political, intellectual, involve epistemological debate as a necessary feature of their conflicts. So we're back to what we talked about in the last talk and the centrality of epistemology. What was that phrase uh, by Moscovici? Questions of epistemology are questions of social order. Questions of epistemology are questions of social order. And when we differ about epistemology, um, in our views of epistemology, and our leanings there, uh, that might be healthy to a certain extent, but it's part, of, it's part of what gets argued about. And again, the abyss can become so wide that it's un, unbridgeable. Notice that all three kinds of tradition, religious, political, intellectual, involve epistemological debate as a necessary feature of their conflicts. For it is not merely that different participants in a tradition disagree, they also disagree as to how to characterize their disagreements and as to how to resolve them. They disagree as to what constitutes appropriate reasoning, decisive evidence, conclusive proof. In other words, exactly remember this, what epistemology means. How do I know? What is appropriate reasoning? What is decisive evidence? What is conclusive proof? What are the bases of my knowledge? So epistemological differences actually are quite fundamental to this. They're, they're wrapped up, or, or the kind of arguments and conflicts that a tradition has to have as part of its health also involves epistemological conflicts, or conflicts about epistemologically. But again, I would add, what happens when they get too wide? What happens when the, uh, the, the, rift, the rifts over epistemology are, are more like abysses? All these questions, they're, they're for you. I mean, 
I, I obviously wrestle with them as well. But um, as I said at the beginning, I want I want them I want this to be yours. What else can we unearth here? Part of um, conflict and argument it, within traditions and within the institutions that embody or transmit or carry, uh, at least in part, uh, carry traditions. Part of kinds of conflict, excuse me, the kind of conflicts going are between what we might call um, uh, the conservative tendency and the innovative innovative tendency. And um, uh, <laughs> you just have to join join a board of, of some um, institution to see, to see that this will this will be the case. Um, I I would actually view that conflict as a kind of archetypal tug of war between uh, the conservative tendency and the innovative tendency. And there's something archetypal about it. There's something actually inevitable about it. I just want to point out also, it's not it's not so black and white. And um, in other words, what's conservative, what's innovative. But also it's not, it's not that we can point a finger and say, oh, that person's always conservative and that person's always trying to break new ground, ground and be radical. Um, anyone... Any one person can manifest both tendencies with respect to different aspects of, of Dharma or Buddha Dharma, if, if we're talking about that as an example. And obviously that's the one that's going to be mostly relevant to most of the people listening to this talk. So the same person at different times, in different uh, arenas of discussion or debate, whatever, could, could manifest either conservatism or, or a kind of more radical innovation. But but my main point is that it's inevitable. There's something archetypal and therefore inevitable about it. So the whole point about Jung's teachings on archetypes is these things will occur. They're patterns that occur uh, inevitably in human uh, being and manifestation, inner and outer. So there's an archetypal tug of war between, let's say, conservatism and innovativism. And, and therefore we need to expect it within a tradition and within institutions that uh, try and um, uh, promote and nourish and sustain and support and offer a tradition in the world. Expect it, but also I think regard it as a creative tension. So again, back to Alistair Mac, or similar to Alistair McIntyre's points, the, the, the argument and conflict are actually healthy. And here there's a tension between two seemingly opposed tendencies, conservatism and, um, let's say, innovation. And there's something in the difficulty of that, in the rub of that, um, that we should not just expect, but actually perhaps we can regard it as a blessing, difficult as it can be at times. That conflict of opinions that pull in two different directions, um, two different perspectives. Actually, out of the, the 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 friction and the ferment of that um, is 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 a sort of kind of creative tension that can be fertile. So again, there's an analogy here between what I was talking about in the, in the talks on epistemology and ontology between the uh, latitude of logoi, the latitude of concepts and conceptual frameworks, which I which we can include 
in our practice, in our explorations, in our, uh, if we talk about soul making dharma, in our, in, um, in our uh, remit and, uh, and range and furthering and growth of soul making dharma, there's a creative tension, I pointed out, between the latitude of the logoi um, that we entertain on one hand and the <clears throat> what we might call the resistance or the constraint of the material on the other hand. So if you remember, I was talking about that with regard to science and with regard to epistemology more widely, mainly. So the constraint of the material is through, well, something has to tally with my experience, with my phenomenological observation of things. I can't disregard that. That forms some kind of constraint on, on the kinds of conceptual frameworks and concepts and ideas I can entertain. Something, again, has some kind of authority, which, again, forms to some degree, some kind of constraint on the latitude uh, and range of the logoi, the concepts, the ideas that I build on. And um, uh, that things have to be somewhat at least coherent um, between all the different elements of ideas and practice um, and what I've received from authority and, and whatever. Something has to, and my um, phenomenal, phenomenological observation principally the ideas themselves, something has to be coherent. And that, that need for coherence or that demand for a certain amount of coherence also forms a certain kind of constraint on the range, the latitude of Lokoi. So there's an analogy there. And out of that, um, <clears throat> out of that tension between the need for latitude and the permission and the uh, legitimization of a certain latitude of Lokoi, um, the tension between that and the constraint, the resistance, the, the solidity of the material, that it's not, as I said, just um, thin air. There's something that I need to work with and, and kind of partly against to shape this crucible, to mold this crucible. So there's parallels there now, again, between the considerations of epistemology, ontology, and what we can build conceptually and therefore what uh, supports and opens further soul-making. And this whole notion of creative tension and, and, and tradition, the resistance of sort of conservatism versus the latitude of innovation, etc. And again, I'm putting this out to you as, as uh, many of you will already have, have deep love and commitment and devotion to the soul-making dharma. All this applies to soul-making dharma uh, as well, if we can talk about it as a, I don't know, sub-tradition or tradition or whatever. All of it, everything that I'm saying applies to that and um, needs to be considered. Maybe now, maybe in due course, maybe whatever. It, it all applies because it, it, I'm talking generic, generically about traditions. So to be loyal to the logos of soul-making um, will include... Uh, I think a healthy loyalty, uh, an alive loyalty, a vital loyalty will include um, elements that are conservative. What's that, what we've actually said here? What's actually the, 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 can we be true to what was said and not just go off on any whim of direction because it feels good or feels exciting or, or whatever? Um, it will involve that. It will also involve, I hope, an innovation in time and integration and um, um, 
connections with other traditions, with other influences, with other considerations, with other concepts, practices. So to me, being in a tradition, I very much feel this in terms of Buddha Dharma, that I, that I am, we, we are, or we can be in dialogue with the tradition. It's a, it's a two-way thing. Actually, maybe it's more, more of a polylogue, if that's even the word. It's a, it's a, it's a multi, um, a multi-personed, multi-pronged conversation. And that's part of what makes, uh, makes it healthy. There's some rub and resistance and tension uh, as part of what what allows the friction that allows things to ignite in a good way. And of course, that ignition can ignite so that things burn and something is is, uh, burnt to cinders. And fire goes out. There's nothing, nothing left to burn. All this to consider. Let's uh, add something to the pot or drag something up from the bottom of the pot um, uh, for our consideration to add to, to, add to all this. Um, Pierre Hadot is a, a, a writer, maybe some of you know him, uh, writes about um, philosophy and different religious traditions. And um, he has an article called Philosophy, Exegesis, and Creative Mistakes. Exegesis is a word that means basically something like interpretation. Yeah. So philosophy, interpretation, and creative mistakes. And he gives examples of exegetical, so interpretive practices on um, authoritative texts, so texts that are considered within a tradition as authoritative or canonical or whatever. Um, in both philosophy and religion, and uh, those interpretive practices, exegetical practices, exegetical practices, um, creating all manner of mistakes. So he lists uh, some examples there, and he writes: It frequently occurs that exegesis, interpretations, construct entire edifices of interpretation on the basis of a banal or misunderstood or mistranslated phrase. The modern historian, he continues, may be somewhat disconcerted on coming across such modes of thought so far removed from his usual manner of reasoning. He is, he, she, they, are, however, forced to admit one fact. Very often, mistakes and misunderstandings have brought about important evolutions in the history of philosophy, and I would say religion and spiritual traditions, In particular, they have caused new ideas to appear. In other words, some of what gets integrated into a tradition, some of how a tradition grows, is not through this very careful, conscious deliberation that we might consider, for example, Thomas Aquinas to have um, engaged in in the Middle Ages uh, with regard to Christianity and Aristotle, etc., Um, It's actually coming from misunderstanding, a mistranslation, a scribal error, a complete misconstruing, and one isn't even aware of it. And yet, again, just as, again, paralleling a little bit, uh, uh, the story we told about Newton building his whole magnificent edifice of Newtonian physics on two ideas which were later proved to be not valid, untrue absolute space and absolute time. 
Similarly, in traditions, they can uh, um, all kinds of errors and mistakes can come in that actually end up proving very fertile for that tradition. I, I, uh, one of my teachers is very dear to me. His teaching is very, very dear to me and hugely influential. And I remember years ago, you know, hearing him talk a lot about. Um, uh, obviously, his teaching of the Buddha Dharma and explaining that, and then sometimes telling stories about the monastery that he was in and the teacher there, the abbot there, and then reading uh, the abbot's teaching uh, from another source um, and more direct source, more direct quote, a sort of extended interview with this abbot, and and just being completely struck by what on earth how on earth did my teacher get his teaching from this abbot or how on earth could he interpret this abbot as as uh, as saying the things that he then reported him to say the whole flavor of it the whole thrust of it the direction the ethos the the um the feel of it the scope of it um it it was it was so alien um and I, for one, feel extremely glad that in his, because he was in Thailand not speaking Thai, so he, he kind of had to, occasionally he had translators um, giving him little bits of, translating little bits of the teaching. But the rest of it, he had, you know, maybe like pidgin Thai and had to kind of figure things out and piece it together or get the general vibe. And he... I would just wonder whether he came away with something completely different. But I, for one, am extremely thankful that that was the case. And that his um, uh, not knowing the language and not being very gifted in terms of languages um, and whatever he bought in terms of his predispositions, um, I think uh, gave birth in him to a dharma that I, I was extremely influential and um, inspiring for me and beautiful and very much opened what the Dharma could be. I don't know whether I would have been very much taken with his teacher's Dharma, the abbot's Dharma, had I just heard it, you know, um, translated by someone who was, in fact, um, completely fluent in Thai. So, adding to our mix the possibility um, in the past and in the recent present and even now and certainly in the future that there can be what we might call what Piado calls creative mistakes um, unwitting errors of all kinds um, that misunderstandings, misinterpretations, mistranslations, uh, misconstruals uh, that actually end up being formative and constitutive of, of a tradition's uh, trajectory um, so that too is something I think uh, that we have to recognize um, as fact. And, and again, the question is, how, how does it land with you? What are we going to deal? What are we going to do with it? How are we going to view it? How are we going to relate to it? What are our responsibilities there? So there's all kinds of tensions here. Um, <clears throat> And I was hunting for a suit. I couldn't fa- find it earlier when I looked. So I found two that were a little bit similar. But there's a sutta somewhere where, uh, in the Pali Canon, where um, 
the Buddha here is that a monk is um, saying, is teaching in a certain way something, it was something about the nature of consciousness. <clears throat> and he basically tells the other monks, go get that monk, bring him here. And he sits this monk down who's teaching something or other about the nature of consciousness that the Buddha did not agree with. And he, and he basically publicly humiliates him, or from our modern reading, that's what it really sounds like. It's really scathing in front of the whole assembly of monks. And, um, and so that's absolutely not what I'm teaching. That's not how to regard consciousness, etc., etc. Um, so I couldn't find that passage, but I think it's mirrored or very similar in another one which I did find called the Water Snake simile. Uh, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya, Majjhima uh, 22. Um, and um, just to listen to some of the language to get a sense of, uh, in this case, the, the, the monk in question um, had certain views about, uh, he would say, as I understand the Dhamma taught by the Blessed One, the Buddha, those acts the Blessed One says are obstructive when indulged in are not genuine obstructions. Um, so, um, so the monks told the Buddha, and the Buddha said, go get him. And he, um, again, was plonked in front of the assembly of monks and, and basically um, humiliated him. So let's see what the Buddha says, just to give you a bit of flavor of this. Um, uh, then the Buddha asked him, is it true that you've said that? Um, and and he, he said, yes. And then listen to what the Buddha says. Worthless man, worthless man. This is in front of a whole assembly of monks. He's worthless man. From whom have you understood that Dharma taught by me in such a way? Worthless man. Haven't I in many ways described obstructive acts? And then he, he, he explains, you know, his actual teaching. But you, worthless man, through your own wrong grasp of the Dharma, have both mi misrepresented us as well as injuring yourself and accumulating much demerit for yourself, for that, for that will lead to your long-term harm and suffering. Um, and, then, and then he turns to the monks that are gathered there, and he said, Then the Blessed One said to the monks, What do you think, monks? Is this monk, whose name was Aritta, um, is this monk in this doctrine and discipline? And they say, how could he be, Lord? No, he's not. Um, and it says, when this was said, the monk, Arita, sat silent, abashed, his shoulders drooping, his head down, brooding, at a loss for words. And then the Buddha doesn't even stop there. And when he was sitting like that, silent, abashed, his shoulders drooping, his head down, brooding, at a loss for words, uh, Buddha continues, worthless man, you will be recognized for your own pernicious viewpoint. And then I will cross-examine the monks on this matter. So then he, you know, my, my point is just <clears throat> the Buddha is not, hey, it's cool, everything goes. You know, people can have their different points of view. We're all a happy family here. Let's not, let's not get entangled in, in arguments about what is the, the, the true teaching, the true Dharma, etc. He's um, quite scathing and not afraid to publicly... Um, Again, what we would read as publicly humiliate. And he's very protective of what he sees as this is the Dharma. This is the, the Dharma that I have set in motion. And that, whatever that is, is not. As I said, there was some sutta that was quite similar in terms of its um, 
social uh, uh, playing out, but it was it was more about something about consciousness. But you know, I found that one. Another time, um, it's from Samyutta Nikaya. Um, uh, is it Samyutta? See, um, sixteen, thirteen. Um, on one occasion, the Blessed One was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anatapindika's monastery. Then Venerable Mahakasapa, who was a senior uh, disciple of the Buddha, went to the Blessed One and, on arrival, having bowed down to him, sat to one side. Actually, all this is quite instructive about the, the social aspects of, of tradition. And again, this question, what's what's needed, what's necessary, what's not. And he says, as he was sitting there, he said to the Blessed One, what is the cause, Lord? What is the reason why before there were fewer training rules and yet more monks established in final gnosis, gnosis, arahantship, enlightenment? Why before there were fewer training rules and yet more monks established in final gnosis, whereas now there are more training rules and yet fewer monks established in final gnosis? And the Buddha says, that's the way it is, Kasapa. When beings are degenerating and the true Dharma is disappearing, there are more training rules and yet fewer monks established in final gnosis. This is within the Buddha's lifetime. This is, this is his perspective as time goes on. I don't know how many years are this is after his, his original enlightenment. Um, he continues the Buddha, There is no disappearance of the true Dhamma as long as a counterfeit of the true Dhamma has not arisen in the world. But there is the disappearance of the true Dhamma when a counterfeit of the true Dhamma has arisen in the world. So in other words, there's false Dhamma. He's pointing out there's a counterfeit Dhamma. There's false teaching putting out, being, being put forward as true Dhamma, but it's counterfeit. And he's saying when that's the case, it's like, boy, watch out. There's the disappearance of the Dhamma. Um, and he continues, um, it's not this or it's not that that makes true Dhamma disappear. It's worthless people who arise right here within the Sangha who make the true Dhamma disappear. The true Dhamma doesn't disappear the way a boat sinks all at once. And he continues, these five downward leading qualities tend to the confusion and disappearance of the true Dhamma. So he's obviously been thinking about this. Which five? There is the case where the monks, nuns, male lay followers and female lay followers live without respect, without deference for the teacher. They live without respect, without deference for the Dhamma, for the Sangha, for the training, for concentration. Interesting. Um, these are the five downward leading qualities that tend to the confusion and disappearance of, of, of the true Dhamma. But these five qualities tend to the stability, the non-confusion, the non-disappearance of the true Dhamma. Which five? There is the case where the monks, nuns, male lay followers and female lay followers live with respect, with deference for the teacher. They live with respect, with deference for the Dhamma, for the Sangha, for the training for the con- and for concentration. These are the five qualities that tend to the stability, the non-confusion, the non-disappearance of the true Dhamma. So he's he's very much concerned, and yet uh, was not able to completely stop in his lifetime this proliferation of what he called counterfeit dharma, watering down mixed teachings, mixed confusions, misrepresentations, and he was really quite strong about it. 
So you get that whole uh, tension and that whole kind of um, uh, um, kind of what seems like almost some may seem a harshness to some to some people's ears may seem like harshness and a rigidity and a narrow mindedness and an attachment and an anxiety on the part of the discoverer or creator of the Dharma. Um, you, you get that. At the same time, there's another story, and I, I can't, again, find it somewhere in the Pali Canon, where um, after the Buddha's death, <clears throat> and they were um, trying to codify or, or, or uh, collect the teachings and, and kind of canonize them uh, with the help of Ananda, and, um, and they found this Arahant, uh, this old guy, he was very old, who was still, this is some years after the Buddha's death, and he was still alive when the Buddha was alive. And they said, well, this is what we've codified so far, and like this. And, and they said it to him. And he sort of said, well, okay, that's okay. If that's how you heard it, if it's okay with you, I'll, I prefer to uh, stick to the Dharma that I heard myself from the Blessed One's lips, from the Buddha's lips. And it touches me when I, when I say that. Um, uh, and they said to him, okay, since you heard it from the Buddha's lips, uh, you know, and he was an arahant, so he he'd sort of got the certificate of um, acceptability and authority. So, okay, you, you go with that. And there was this agreement to have this diversity of, of dhammas there. Actually, they didn't, they hadn't heard his version. They didn't kind of recognize it, it wasn't part of their codified version. And he, he wasn't really familiar with theirs. And he was like, well, Okay, we'll just we'll just be divergent like that, and it's fine. And there's the mutual respect and the mutual allowing and inclusion. So there's this this tension between kind of const- constriction, constraint, um, authenticity, um, uh, and 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 latitude. I heard also what's kind of was interesting to me that as as the tradition went on, the early Buddhist tradition, that and, and this again may have started with, the, I'm not sure how much how much the seeds of this were also in the Buddha, and um, the Buddha's direct words, but that differences of vinaya, of the monastic discipline and rules and ethical precepts, were actually more significant than differences of interpretation of doctrine and teaching. I don't know if that's true, but I I heard that somewhere or other. So that's quite interesting as well. That Again, within the body of tradition, what latitudes are more acceptable than others? And somehow, somewhere along the line, again, maybe seeded by something the Buddha said, contrary to some of the other passages that I've just read, that actually it's okay if people have different, slightly different doctrinal interpretations, or maybe even, maybe even quite different doctrinal interpretations, but really um, differing over um, interpretations of the Vinaya, the monastic discipline, and the, the laws and the guidelines of behavior and speech, etc. Um, that's a big deal. So why is that? Well, maybe it's because the monks and nuns needed uh, the laity's respect. They were dependent on them for arms. They needed to be regarded by the laity as being uh, noble, upright, strict, and rigorous in their observance, etc. So maybe there was uh, a kind of necessity there for the tradition. 
it's also the case that when ethics certainly gets neglected, there's all kinds of fractures that that will almost inevitably follow in a community when the ethics isn't cared for. I also read, just again, putting these almost like um, divergent pieces of a puzzle together, that at the beginning of the Mahayana, when the Mahayana sort of began to grow and flourish uh, in Buddhist, uh, in India, um, that it was quite common to have monasteries where some practitioners were overtly uh, Mahayana practitioners, openly Mahayana practitioners, and thought in those terms and aspired in those terms. And some practitioners were Hinayana practitioners. And uh, they coexisted um, in the same monasteries very amicably and peacefully and just agreed to have different views and, and directions. So that, to me, is really interesting. It doesn't happen now. Um, how much, uh, when that stopped happening, is, is an interesting question to me. Why it stopped happening is also an interesting question. How much that original co-amicable cohabitation was just a result of the fact that at that at the beginnings of the Mahayana, maybe a Mahayana practitioner was just someone who had a slightly different aspiration. So back to shared shared goals, you know. All the understanding was the same, but there was just the view that um, it's also possible for some people to aspire not just to arahantship but to Buddhahood, which was much more uh, demanding uh, and difficult to attain. But the whole conceptual frameworks, ontological commitments, they were all the same. And at some point later in history, the beliefs, the conceptual frameworks, the teachings, the ontological commitments actually became more divergent, and it was no longer possible um, for those people to consider themselves as really part of the same tradition. Um, so all, all this, to, to me, is interesting. You know, uh, what's involved here, uh, what goes on in traditions, what's necessary to what degree are different elements necessary? To what degree are divergent elements necessary? Is there even, last thought for now, is there even a kind of higher level tension that that, that is uh, necessary for a vital, healthy tradition? Is there a, a so-called, maybe not meta level, but a higher level tension between, um, let's say, unity or harmony, better unity, a sense of unity, and also differentiation. So we can be in a tradition with the view, it's all one, we're all saying the same thing, we're all agreeing. And sometimes to me that's just baffling, it's obvious that people are talking about different things, and sometimes I say something and someone interprets it just according to what they already believe, and believes that I'm saying the same thing, and um, it's interesting at least. Um, quite frustrating um but is there is you know we need some sense of unity at least harmony but even more unity sense this does form a co- cohesive tradition and um a tension between that between unity and harmony on one hand and differentiation on the other hand because as i've pointed out i've spent a long time talking about this in the eros unfettered teachings uh, uh series in the what was it called? Dilemmas and delineations or something like that. 
and maybe some other talks. Um, it's it's through careful differentiation, careful discernment. Actually, that idea is different than that idea. That conceptual basis is different and, and will lead in a different direction. That word is being used in two different ways or four different, whatever it is, and actually discerning between them, differentiating between them, because out of that differentiation um, can come greater efficacy, greater power, greater precision in terms of where we're headed and our ability to actually get there. Um, by power, I don't mean power over, because that's that's another thing we haven't really touched on that goes with traditions and hierarchies and power over this person or this group has hierarchical power over another person or group within that tradition. I'm really talking about power as efficacy, efficacy of an idea, the power of an idea, the power of a certain practice or certain way of practicing or way of thinking or, or whatever it is. That differentiation, careful distinction and demarcation, delineation of ideas, concepts, um, practices is actually necessary for a practice, for an idea to have power. So that maybe there's, there is also this need for careful differentiation and there's a need for, for harmony and unity. And so maybe there's a tension between those two as well within a tradition. So let's stop there for now, and uh, there's other aspects I want to also bring to the light to consider. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.